Spotlight On is brought to you by Light, the technology platform reimagining e-commerce for live events. You can learn more about Light at light.com forward slash partnerships. That is L-Y-T-E dot com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. This week, the spotlight shines on Vito Yaya. Vito is co-founder of two companies, one of which, Impact Museums, is making waves across the United States with its production of the original immersive Van Gogh. Vito breaks down the hows and what's of Impact, immersive entertainment more generally, and we dig into a whole lot more. You get the chance to listen in as two old friends and colleagues chop it up. I hope you enjoy. Get a shiver in the dark, it's raining in the park, but meantime. I have to say, the fact that you are now doing podcasts with people of my caliber is probably not a good bellwether for you, the podcast industry, but there's like, there's, 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 there's like a mortgage crisis of 2008, right? When you started giving mortgages <laughs> with such bad credit, everything comes crumbling down. But yeah, <laughs> there's so many podcasts out there and there, there's so few people left to talk to. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that we've both managed to uh, completely make ourselves irrelevant, usually what I do is I start at the beginning and work forward in somebody's sort of life and path. But because I feel like you're living in a world of one of the more interesting, fast growing segments of the live world right now, I'd love to kind of jump in and talk a little bit about what you're doing now. And to the extent you're comfortable with it or able to, I'd love to get a little bit of the story of how it came together, both your business and to be more specific, the Immersive Van Gogh Project. So I, I, I am a founder of two companies right now. One is called Impact Museums, which is known for its participation as a co-producer on the Immersive Van Gogh project that you just mentioned. The other one's called X1 Entertainment. But the genesis story of Impact Museums is not to make this too long, but ever since you know I spent a good chunk of my career at Ticketmaster Live Nation, which is where you and I met. And after I left Ticketmaster, Kylan was on this this journey in my life for what I, what I call very, very jokingly, the perfect live entertainment PNL. Because if, if there was one thing that was very, very hard to digest about dedicating our careers to this industry, it's that it's very hard to make money unless you are the artist, right? I mean, the most of the economics go to the talent as they should probably, but it's really hard to find disproportionate profitability in this industry. So I was always on the lookout for that. And, you know, shortly after I left Ticketmaster, I found out that minor league baseball players, for example, don't get for by the owner of the minor league team, they get paid for by the major league team. And I was like, oh, wow, a, a PL and live entertainment where you don't have to pay the talent. So I got really forensic in minor league baseball for, for far too long, almost even my life, and then ended up uh, abandoning it largely because, you know, that business can't scale. And then I got into a business touring internet celebrities for a Peter Chernin-backed company. And the reason I loved that PL was because for, for the first time, a celebrity had a direct pipe to their fans, whether they were a YouTube star or an Instagram or TikToker, podcaster, whatever, 
they could market the show themselves through their channels, the channels that made them famous to begin with. And you could eliminate the marketing cost line item from that live entertainment PL. So we ended up creating the largest touring entity of internet celebrities in the world. That company was eventually sold to Warner Media, which was eventually sold to AT&T. But that had had kind of whipped my appetite for this space. And it was right around then, this is like 2018 now, maybe 2017, where you started seeing a lot of what I would call location-based entertainment popping up that was not Disney. So like Museum of Ice Cream started getting really big, Candytopia and some of these other guys. And as I was starting to exit that company, I put together a business plan to the original business plan was actually to roll up companies that were already doing things like this. I just, I became very fascinated with two things. One was that you could have a business where at the end of the night, you weren't chopping up the gross of the show, 95% to the artist percent for you or 90% to whatever, you know, the deals that exist. Just promotion, right? It's a really, really tough business to make work. Here was the first time you could run, maybe not the first time, but it, it, it was allowing you to not only take the majority of the economics at the end of the night as the show producer, but secondly, and arguably more importantly, you didn't need a human being to be on a stage playing an instrument or a number of human beings being on a field playing a sport. This thing, if it worked, whatever your idea was, if it's a hit, you can replicate it and you can have it in 50 or 20 or 100 different cities across the world at the same time, building a business that truly scaled. So based on those characteristics, uh, I put together a deck that was going to roll up the people in this business that were already doing it. And I had a private equity company in uh, Los Angeles willing to back me. And they wanted me to build one first. They said, can we build one first before we you know, just give you the checkbook to start acquiring these things? And I said, sure, I need a partner. And I brought in a friend of mine from business school, a brilliant guy named Mark Shedlesky, one of my best friends on the planet. And he and I had been trying to work together for a very, very long time. He was always unavailable when I was available and vice versa. But finally, the, the timing was right. So we started partnering on it together and we started building the models and figuring out how we were going to launch this thing. And right around then was when I was approached by a major league baseball team for an executive position. And I'd always been fascinated with baseball and always wanted to work in it. And I asked my partner, Mark, I said, would you be cool with me spending a little time doing this and scratching this itch? I don't want to go to the grave with any regret, but I will be working on, on impact museums on the side and we'll come back quick. Uh, and he was cool that he said, as long as you let me bring in a couple of other co-founders, which we did. We now have four co-founders in the business. Anyway, the deal with the private equity company didn't work simply for cap table reasons. So we ended up doing it ourselves. And lo and behold, the first deal that we did was with the company out of Canada that had the exclusive North American rights for this show that was playing in Paris before the pandemic, Old Atelier de Lumiere. The artist's name is Massimiliano Sicardi. And it sold 2 million tickets before the pandemic. And they just had a really, really great timing. They brought it to North America. They wanted to scale it. They couldn't do it. If I could have done it themselves, but they wanted to do it as fast as possible. And we came on board as a co-producer and we put into seven markets in 2021. It ended up being the biggest selling event on Ticketmaster globally. I always joke that 2021 is probably the, the worst year you want to have that distinction of having the best-selling event on Ticketmaster globally, but it's it's still something that you'll take. So anyway, that's 
that's the genesis story of the company. Happy to share more, of course. When you said the four of you did it yourselves, what did that really mean? Like what, or or to say it maybe more pointedly, the dollar amounts aren't important aren't important to me. But what was the startup? What did you have to fund? Well, we were we were going to do one hundred both two things, and this is how the business is built right now. Impact Museums is, is, has two distinct big divisions. One is a studio which produces original content that is owned and operated, and the second is the live platform division. That's the part of the company that I like asking. That's the part of the company that that we know that we aren't going to have all the, the great ideas for live immersive entertainment. Other people and other producers around the world are going to have great ideas, but they're not always going to want to do all what I call the unsexy things that come with putting on a live show. You know, getting a venue, negotiating the lease, outfitting it with proper infrastructure and CapEx, doing the ticketing, doing the performance marketing, hiring 200 people in a month and training them to execute against against that show and that venue. All those things are the things that the picks and shovel strategy, I'll call it. Those are the things that exist in our live entertainment business. And that business, the live entertainment business can be deployed for content that's coming out of our own uh, owned and operated studio, or it can be deployed for, like I said, a third-party producer. In this case, it was deployed for the third-party producer. So what we built was two things. We, we built the ability to, to create our own content, and we're building a distribution mechanism through the live entertainment portion of the company. Given what you just said about the area of your, like what you look after and your area of focus, can you talk a little bit about the studio though? Like, is it a bunch of like really smart people locked in a room somewhere? Are you like, what does it mean to have a studio and what's, what's the content development sort of life cycle like? It's a great question. And it's a question I probably wouldn't have been able to answer before we started this company up, you know, a little more than a couple of years ago. The studio operates just like any other studio, whether it be a movie studio or production studio operates, which is to say we have a number of executives and those executives have worked on projects that are, that are pretty famous in the immersive space, such as Sleep No More, Meow Wolf. Those are the people that, that run our studio now. And their job is to do exactly that, is to, is to come up with great creative concepts. But it isn't, it isn't just a bunch of people in a room on a whiteboard. Yeah, that's how some of the ideation and blue sky happens, but we have really what I would call disciplined and structured rigor against the studio process, which means if a great idea comes out of the studio, they have to pass certain gates before they can unlock more and more budget. So what will happen is an idea will come, the studio executives will pitch it to the four co-founders. And if we like it, we will unlock some portion of the budget at the first gate. And then there are KPIs and goals that they have to hit before the second gate, before they can pitch to us again. And if they do, and the pitch is good, then we'll unlock a little more of that budget all the way up until the point where we're, we're fully pregnant with the project and we are going to take it to the world. And the other thing I didn't realize from a studio business, because as you know, I am not a creative and I sit on the other side of the business, is how long it takes for original content to get to the planet. And in this space, it's a year plus. I mean, you could certainly do it fast. You deploy more resources against it or you do it in a, in a less thorough way. But it, it takes a long time for something to come to the world. So our first original production um, won't be hitting until later this year, potentially early next. Does original for you mean completely original IP? Or is it that you have an idea for an IP item that exists out in the world? You'll build the, the narrative and the tech around it and go acquire the IP? Like, how, how, how should I think about that? Yeah, it, it can happen either way. So there are, there are just ideas that will come out of the studio that can be anything, right? 
and we work on it. We own it completely. Then there are ideas. We get approached a lot by IP holders, whether they be musicians or authors or what have you, saying that they want to be part of an immersive experience. So sometimes what we'll do is we'll just partner with them and we will figure out the immersive experience together. Then there are other things out there like, you know, we call ourselves impact museums because we are trying to not be as isn't necessarily vapid as some of the immersive experiences that have, that have populated this space in the past. You know, we're trying to do things that are going to educate things that are based in cause and altruistic efforts. So, you know, then the notion of, you take something like climate change, how do you build a really cool immersive experience around climate change? Well, you need to bring in subject matter experts, right. To help advise and consult and be co-producers on projects like that. So they end up being pretty large undertakings that cost millions of dollars. So you're placing big bets here, but you're doing so in a way that hopefully you're you're mitigating and de-risking as you go through the gate process. And what's the story with Immersive Van Gogh? Like, you know, so you you partner with a with a third-party producer on it. I get that. And you started to explain it to me when I saw you last, but I, I, I'm still not 100% sure I, I walked away understanding why is that marketplace so crowded right now? And how do I tell your Van Gogh show in a city from some of the other ones that seem to be sort of Me Too copycat um, productions? There, there are two types of content out there that you can tour or that you, you can exhibit. One is Van Gogh, which is public domain content, right? So he's been dead long enough that there are no rights, there's no license that you need to get to do a Van Gogh show. And when when that condition exists in the market and anyone shows success, everyone's going to try to replicate and, and steal that market share. So that's what happened with Van Gogh, for instance. The original Van Gogh, and we, we call ours the original immersive Van Gogh because it's, it's the one that came out of France by Massimiliano Sicardi, the original one. But as soon as we started selling significant amounts of ticket inventory, you, you saw the copycats come. And that's to be expected in this business. A couple of weeks ago, we just launched our immersive Frida Kahlo show. And Frida Kahlo is not the public domain. She has not been dead long enough. So we actually did a deal with Bagbo to Mexico where we licensed from her estate the ability to do that. So with Frida Kahlo, you won't see any legal licensed copycat competitors. So that's generally speaking how the space works. So like we get it, one of the places we're getting approached from quite a bit right now are the record labels wanting to do immersive experience around their acts, mostly their heritage acts. And that would be a great example of something where you won't have to figure out and do the research of, am I going to the right experience? Because there's two, whatever, Led Zeppelin shows playing in my market. The the Van Gogh one is it is a it's it's I won't say it's an unfortunate example because like I said I think you're going to see competition whenever you see that kind of ticket sales volume exist. But the the consumer was the one that ended up paying the price there because we had a lot of people that had bought tickets for our show that ended up going to the competitor because the, the marketing wasn't clear and things like that. It's not like Yankees and Mets or Angels and Dodgers, right? It's it's a little bit harder to to get that message to the consumer. So to go back to where you started around the idea of like the hunt for the perfect PL, is it inevitable then that over time, at least until you get more proof of concept with your own studio, that you're going to have to do more deals that make that PL slightly less perfect? Yeah, prob- probably. I mean, perfect is 
is the word that you, I guess we put in quotes there. Like, we're, I don't think we're aiming for perfection or we weren't going to be in business very long, but it's still going to be a stronger business. Look, we knew that the world didn't need another promoter, right? There, there are too many of them and, and very few of them make money. So we didn't get into this business to promote shows. We got into this business to build a company that not only had the ability to create content and bring it to the planet, but also be, you know, the space doesn't have a, a quote live nation yet. There isn't a distribution platform for this stuff yet. So one of the differences between us and many of our competitors is, you know, you'll see someone come in and rent a, a space in a mall for six months, and put up some sort of immersive experience, or they, they put a tent up in a parking lot. We're quite the opposite. We sign very long-term leases, or we will buy the real estate outright. And then we, we go in and we put tens of millions of dollars of capital, CapEx into those buildings to turn them into world-class performance and exhibition venues. So we're creating destinations that are going to be in these markets for a long time. So the goal isn't to show a show. The goal is to create a place that gets known for entertaining that community. And, you know, we always talk about the four co-founders of the business. We're talking about what problem are we solving? There's all great businesses and all great startups. They're founded on the notion of solving a problem. And we still haven't fully cracked the code on, on what problem we're solving. But one of the, one of the things that we know that we are doing is we're, we're helping answer the question, what am I going to do with the family tonight? Or what am I going to do with the family this weekend? That's still, that's still a really big, a big question mark and a big black box for a lot of people. Like, what are we going to do this Saturday? And we are, we're starting to, to, to hopefully chip away at that problem a little bit. So in the case where you take over a long-term lease or you actually buy the dirt, what are the opportunities around that? Like, do the buildings, are they named destinations? Could you sell the naming rights? Is it, is it an impact museum facility? Like if I'm a consumer, where am I going? What, where, what building do I think I'm going to? So again, this goes back to the second part of the business, which is the, the, the live platform part of the business. So the third party producer that we did the deal with is based out of Canada and go specifically is a company called Lighthouse. We created a joint venture. We call it LHIM, Lighthouse Impact Museums. That joint venture is the entity that holds the seven venues across the country that you're seeing play off all this great content. The venues themselves are called Lighthouse Art Spaces. So they do have a name. They do have websites. Could we sell the naming rights? Of course we could. Uh, is that a possibility? Maybe down the road. I don't think we're thinking about that right now. Right now, we're really trying to build equity into the brand and getting these communities to understand that, that hey, there's this great place in your town that's doing these things and we'll be doing them for a long time. I think the possibilities are are significant because the, you know, and if you talk to, you know, we have some great advisors on our team and investors in our company, C3 being one of them. And, and when we get advice from those guys, they'll, they'll tell you pretty loudly and strongly that, that real estate wins the day in this business. Now that, that isn't necessarily why we've decided to take the strategy we've taken. We've decided to do it because we believe strongly that, that building a brand is part of how you create mode and you can defend your company. But Another proof point in any case. Right now in America, are there multiple productions other than Van Gogh out there yet? Or is this year and next where you start to roll out more properties? Speaking for us specifically, Frida Kahlo is now live in two markets and will continue to roll out over the course of the next month or two. Gustav Klimt is live in two weeks in Phoenix as its debut market and will continue to roll out across the country. And there is a slate of content coming throughout the summer and the rest of the year that hasn't been announced publicly. But if I had to ballpark it, just so that I give you a 
less vague answer, I would say you'll probably see somewhere between six and 10 shows play off in 2022 across the venue network. Does that mean that by definition, any individual show will have a finite beginning, middle and end so that the next one can load in? Or is it you could have two spaces in the same city with two competing shows? Like, how do you think about because you, you talked a lot earlier about scale. So are you scaling the one venue usage or are you scaling to have multiple properties out all the time in multiple cities? Yeah. So the first thing to know is these seven venues have been set up with projection mapping technology. And if you've seen the show, you know what that is, right? The, the images are moving around you on the floor and on the walls. And it's sort of a, of a novel technology right now. And I think people are very taken by it. So right now you can change out a show in one of our venues by changing the hard drive, right? We can play five different shows a day on the walls. We don't take that approach. We, right now, we, for instance, in pick a market in Dallas, we have Van Gogh playing three or four days a week and Dallo playing the other three or four days a week because we want to keep the experience clean, right? So for instance, the, the retail and merge area need to be relevant to the artists that you've seen, for instance, right? The gallery attendants that are going to answer questions about when you have need to understand that artist all that stuff. But inevitably, I believe that the spectacle of projection mapping will start to wait, right? There's only, only so many times you're, you're going to get blown away by things moving all around you in the room before you're like, okay, I've, I've seen this before. So I think the, the productions and the exhibitions will become increasingly scenic, increasingly physical, the way we'll have fabricated pieces as we move forward into the year. To answer your question about diversification, yeah, so the way to think about impact museums is that it is a holding company, right? And that holding company has, has a big joint venture right now with, with Lighthouse. But we will have a portfolio of joint ventures as the years go by. And we will be producing all kinds of different content with hopefully all kinds of great partners, which will require us to have significant real estate footprint in all the major markets, nationally and internationally. So absolutely, I, I see a world where we are going to be in multiple venues. But this joint venture specifically is contained to those seven buildings in Los Angeles, Dallas, Houston, Phoenix, Pittsburgh, Atlanta, and Philadelphia. How does the real estate acquisition work functionally? Like, do you have real estate attorneys and like, what, how's all that work? Cause I know, you know, just commercial real estate in general is so sort of city specific with just how things work and how do you navigate it and the world of brokers and how you get the best deal and all that stuff. How, how do you guys think about that? Or, or let me ask it another way. How do you not get beat at that game? <laughs> <laughs> That's a, that is the better way to ask it because frankly, we, we have a lot of help in real estate because it's not a, a skill set that any of the four co-founders really have. One of our co-founders, Diana Reyes, and we're very fortunate that she has a history in event production and a, I think a minor in, in real estate. But generally speaking, none of them are experts. So we have surrounded ourselves with experts. We have brokers, attorneys, and consultants that we use. We are now hiring a head of real estate and, and we're in the final stages of that interview process, that, that executive will get to build a team underneath them that will handle all these things, all the way from venue scouting to architecture, to dealing with the general contractors and the construction, but also more importantly than that, you know, helping us drive what our real estate strategy is going to be. We, we believe that our real estate strategy can be a really big value proposition for us as a company and create defensibility around this space, right? So we are 
blissfully aware of how blissfully unaware we are internally as the co-founders. And we are just like most of the functions that we know that we need help and we are surrounding ourselves with the with the right people. So was your aspiration early on in life as you started your career to work in music in particular? Like was that was that the thing for you? Or did you get sort of Shanghai into into working in music? <laughs> did you did you have some more profitable career aspirations? Or how did how did you know take us back to to young Vito and and how did it all start for you? Much like all of us that are in this space now, like we all have our story about like the first concert that we went to and how we fell in love and only wanted to do that. And then that kind of applies to me too. I'm from upstate New York originally, and there's a great venue up there called Saratoga Performing Arts Center. And I saw a show and I was mesmerized that I always wanted to be in this space. But I did not start off in this space in my career. I actually started off in, in finance and spent the first five years of my career as a securities trader. And then as a, I did corporate development and merger acquisitions in the energy industry for Enron, by the way, um, which is always a funny little punchline in my So after your store. prison stint, you got into music? <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Three to five and sing, sing. And then I, got, then I started singing. No, um, I knew I wanted to go to business school. So those first five years of my career were kind of, just trying to position myself to get into a great business school. But I always knew I was I was not happy in finance and I knew it wasn't what I was meant to do. So I used business school as, as a way to career switch, as a lot of people do. But you know, getting into the music industry, from, believe it or not, from business school was, was pretty difficult. And I was going to business school in the city of Chicago. So I remember there were there were like 600 kids in my class at Kellogg in Northwestern Business School. And Literally two of us wanted to get to the entertainment business, myself and, and actually the, the guy who's my partner in this business right now, Mark Shedlesky. The way I got in was I, th- there was no way I was going to be able to get a job through normal means. So I just looked at the alumni base and a guy named Greg Latterman had been a Kellogg guy. Greg was the CEO and founder of Aware Records. We found broke artists like John Mayer and Fight for Fighting and Train. And he was kind enough to have breakfast with me. And, and I said, look, I really want to work in the music industry. And I was wondering if you could help me. And he was really kind, gracious with his time. And he gave me a list of 12 people. And I, I think it wasn't even email. He gave, me, he gave me their physical addresses. So I wrote 12 letters and I sent 12 letters out. And one letter was to a company called Jeff McCluskey and Associates, which was the only company in Chicago, by the way, everyone else, as you know, was in Los Angeles or New York. And Jeff was the only one that replied to my letter. And I took a meeting with him and he gave me a summer internship between my two years at business school. And after I graduated, I came back full-time. But when I came back full-time, he hired a COO at this point, a guy named Dave Marcus, who you both know and, and love. And Dave Marcus introduced me to another guy named David Goldberg, who we also both know and love. And the three of us decided that we were going to start our own company. And this was in 2003. By the way, Jeff McCluskey, for those that don't know, was a company that, that did independent music promotion, which means they were they were in the business of getting records played on radio stations for record labels. You, you needed that arm's length third company in, in the in the 90s and the 2000s because there was so much pale going on in the, in the 80s. And eventually, Elliot Spitzer came in and even, even basically got rid of that independent promotion industry now as well. So that, that company doesn't really exist. But... Within a few months of me, David, and David starting this company in Chicago, David Goldberg had received an offer to be the head of strategy for Ticketmaster in Los Angeles. He left 
And, you know, I was still young and still single at the time. And he offered me a job to come out to Los Angeles. And I took it. And, and, and you know, that was such a huge shifting point in my career because I always think if I, if Goldie had not hired me where I would be right now, and how fortunate I was for him to do that. But more importantly, like, I was not passionate about, to answer your question in like the longest way possible, I realized that I was not really passionate about the notion of selling discs or bytes or streaming subscriptions. That, that isn't what I loved. What I loved, and still do to this day, was that the, the adrenaline that comes when the house lights go down at a show. There's two minutes between when the house lights go down and the, and the band starts playing their first number. That's the highest I get in life. And, and I'm addicted to that high. And to have been able to find a way to dedicate my life to it through that job at Ticketmaster and then eventually all the other stuff. I mean, I consider consider myself incredibly fortunate. And this is a horribly charmed life that I get. When you first went to TM, what did Goldie have you doing? And so we were just business development at that point, which really meant anything that didn't fit anywhere else came to us. If someone approached us with a deal or, you know, there was a, a company that needed to be acquired, like that was the first six months of that job. It was just really undefined. And then Goldie came into my office and I'll, I'll never forget. I said, I said, what is our, I have we define success here. And he said, all we're going to try to do is we're going to try to, now he could have said a lot of things that are typical businessy, like, oh, we're going to try to grow the company 10% or we're going to reduce costs by this month. And his answer to that question was, we're just going to get the artist a whole lot closer to the fan. And I was just, I mean, it's such a goldy thing to say, right? I mean, great answer. Right. It was exactly what I needed to hear. I was there seven years total. We spent the majority of the rest of that time after after we stopped or after I stopped being part of the uh, the corporate development team there, figuring out how to do that. And, and Ticketmaster was right in the throes of releasing a lot of technologies. This is 2003 now. It's just really started taking some brand and market share away from Ticketmaster. Not really from Ticketmaster. Ticketmaster wasn't competing in the secondary market, but from ticketing in general, right? So all these technologies, Ticketmaster was developing like auction technologies so that artists could could get true market value for their tickets the first time they were sold and that money could go to a band instead of a broker. What's now called platinum tickets, but really essentially what is buy it now ticketing when you're adjusting the prices like an airline or a hotel would to make sure that you're capturing proper market value. All the stuff that you and I did together where we were bundling upsells for artists with their music and fan club subscriptions and, and all those great things. We were going to be in the in the service of the artist, which which is super cool for Ticketmaster because we've never done that, right? In the value chain, Ticketmaster services the venue. And they've never really had direct communication with the artist. And when I say the artist, I mean the artist representative, the agent or the manager. But Goldie built this team that did exactly that. So the, the dynamic was interesting and please come me off when this gets boring, but at this point, Live Nation was still a client. They did not get owned Ticketmaster, right? But the contract for that ticketing deal was coming up soon. And both parties were trying to, trying to you know, give themselves leverage in the upcoming negotiation. So you started seeing Live Nation do things like hire ticketing executives and start to talk to other companies in the world to do ticketing. And then you started seeing Ticketmaster do things like build a team that talks directly to the artist, right? They were, they were both kind of positioning themselves for what was to come. But we ended up having tremendous success in that business. Eventually, Dave Marcus moved out as well and, and became part of the team. 
we were within, I would say, two years of the start of that business. We were working on every major tour, either doing something to dynamically price their tickets to get the gross of the show up, to facilitate peer-to-peer resale in a safe way, to bundle the fan club subscription or or the recorded music, or to or to do the exact opposite. Like for Springsteen, he's not going to do any of those things. What you do with him is you employed back then a technology called paperless ticketing, which which made it such that the purchaser of the ticket could be the only one that attempted the show and prevented resale in a way to thwart scalping, right? So I did that for three years out of Los Angeles. Then I was sent over to Europe to build the team over there for a couple of years, you know, because you came over and visited a few times. And we did that in Europe from 07, 09, rebuilt that same team. And then Goldberg had moved on to become the CEO of UBET. Marcus had moved on to Warner Brothers Records. So they brought me back from Europe and I had a chance to run the entire music team globally or whatever, whatever it's called. It was called Music Services back then. I think Marcus is calling it music now. I don't know. He's still there. You can- he boomeranged. He made it back there. Yeah. Second tour of duty, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you worked in music. You worked in sports for a minute. And didn't you work in your other great passion? Didn't you work in the gambling space for a while? Yeah, briefly. That was when I was not in search of the perfect PL. But yeah. Well, let me let me ask you a couple of questions before I shut up and let you go, which is there was that minute in time, and my perception looking back is that you guys might have been a little early, where I think it was right after the financial crisis. And the tone seemed to be the states are going to need to loosen the reins on this. And other things were starting to liberalize, you know, other like, I guess you would call like social vice type laws were starting to liberalize and loosen pot laws being probably the most famous. And so it seemed like there was a moment where wagering and sports books were about to explode. And I guess finally now it has, but it seemed like it took longer than it seemed like it was going to 12 or so years ago. Is that, am I remembering it right? Yeah, you are. And look, I'll, I'll preface this by that I spent exactly one and a half years of my career in, in this space. So I'm not, a, I'm not an expert, but yeah, Jeffrey Pollack, who former commissioner of the World Series of Poker, former executive at NBA, NASCAR, CEO of the XFL, really good friend, Ian Goldberg and a couple of other executives had had this idea that 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 poker, if treated like any other sport, in other words, unlike the current poker tournaments where anybody with $10,000 or whatever the buy-in is can play, but if you treated it like golf, where only the best players in the world, if you could actually algorithmically rank them, you created a, a proper league that you could have a televised league that had tournaments that people would watch. And you could create a brand that when real money gaming actually did become legal, you could exploit that brand and you could capture a disproportionate share of that market, kind of like what FanDuel and DraftKings have done. Uh, fast forward 10, 12 years to now. Yeah, the timing was off in, in, a, in a pretty big way because poker, what you see legalized now is you see sports betting legalized now. But poker still, frankly, is not legal online in the United States. So we mistimed that legislation significantly. And if there's one thing I learned from that company, it's that betting on the timing of legislation is tough, right? You look at like what Uber did. They forced that by by being a disruptor. You couldn't do that here without being in serious violation of many, many laws and going to jail. We couldn't just start taking bets and legalized legal bets in poker before the legislation passed. 
but yeah, like now it's opened up. I think somewhere around 22 states have legalized sports betting. It's one of the things I did for the Washington Nationals when I was there is brokered their deal with BetMGM, who now has a sports book right in Nationals Park. But yeah, like oh, look at the end of the day, all these things start. There's a confluence to them, right? Lab entertainment, sports betting, they're all part of it. If you see what Jeffrey Pollack did with the XFL when he was running it a couple of years ago, there was an integration between between gaming, gaming being sports betting, not not gaming with toy or with games. Like the odds were changing live on the screen while you were watching the game. The prop bets were being distributed to you live. Like that is where the world is going when it comes to all this kind of entertainment. And I think they're just going to continue to collide more and more. It, you know, I'll always be a customer. I, I don't think I'll, I'll be working in that space again. I'm glad to be back in live entertainment. And, you know, it was a brief hiatus, but this is where I belong. I love it. Well, you, you qualified the answer by saying you didn't spend a ton of time in the space, but let me ask you another question or two. I, I wonder, I'll give you both questions. One is, why do you think sports wagering mainstreamed when poker didn't and do you have any thoughts on how the genie's out of the bottle for sure in terms of sports and sports books but do you have any fears as somebody who loves sports and is also sort of interested as a as someone who likes to wager um like do you see any any problems there like specifically with like officiating and things like that or what do you know about that world in terms of how that's being protected? Yeah, I don't worry about it. I mean, you know, having done that two-year stint in Europe for Ticketmaster, you know, your world becomes a lot smaller when you get to live internationally. And what what you realize is that this stuff is legal pretty much everywhere else on the planet. And the United States was way behind. I think the reason that poker has, has not caught up yet is simply just because of the, the ability for sports betting is far more lucrative. The potential for that is a tax resources is far greater, but I think you're going to see poker. Like I said, most of the other major territories on the planet already have that legalized. No, I, I, I really don't worry about it. I think it's part of the way people consume entertainment, whether it be on your home, in your home, on the couch, on your phone, or in the venue, playing along. This, this will end up being a bit of a, of a game changer for whenever two teams aren't, they don't have a lot of parity between them, right? And when you see a a 25-point spread in a football game, and you know who's going to win that game before the game starts. This, you know, having this be legalized in the States now is going to give that sport a lot more viewership, a lot more engagement, because the game just all of a sudden became interesting for anyone who engaged in the wagering of that game. Something you said earlier that I wanted to, to pivot back to for a second was um, sort of disavowed me of the misconception that your venues are simply about projection technology. Or the screen technology. And you talked about maybe having to do fabrication and things like that. It becomes more of like a, I don't know, a theatrical environment, if you will, or, 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 or mixed media environment. Are you guys able to see yet, or are you pushing ahead yet? What some of the next iterations are like, is, how do you think about that world? Yeah. I mean, that's what the studio is charged with. It's, it's coming up with, you know, what's going to, what's going to be the zeitgeist. How do we capture it in a way that's different and unique and compelling? And how do we do that in a way that, has some sort of impact on the planet that's positive. And so they don't have, their charge is a, is a grand one, but, but they're, they're tracking against it in a really, in a really great way. I would say that the difference between projection mapping and fabricated shows is not the, is not the the real thing that will matter. I think the real thing that will matter and create, create an ability for a company to last a long time is a, is a 
repeated demonstration of an ability to bring compelling content to the world and making sure that the fan experience is top notch. So, you know, both of those things are on our shoulders in a really big way. We're going through a, a pretty significant capital raise right now, and, and our investors are going to demand that we perform against all those things. But the challenge is super exciting, right? Because we, we talk about it all the time, to use another sports metaphor. When it comes to this part of the live entertainment industry, we're still in the first half of the first inning. And there is an opportunity here for someone to do something really big and really meaningful. And to be, the, again, I hate using this phrase, to be the live nation of this space. And well, one of the things that we aim to be is, is a very, very big player in this space that allow producers to get their content to the world and allow fans to consume that content. Somebody's got to be in the middle and that's our goal. Does the studio have, like, is, there, is it a physical place you can go to? And are they like, you know, are they tinkering around with circuit boards and inflatables and blowing shit up? And like, is, it, is, there, is, there a, is there a scientist lab somewhere where they're developing some of this stuff? There is a writer's room, um, <laughs> and that room exists in the ether through through Zoom. Yeah, at least it does right now. Yeah, the team is distributed across the country. I mean, the company is based in Los Angeles, and many of our most of our executives, frankly, are based in Los Angeles. But many of them are distributed throughout the country. So all these things are existing through through Zoom meetings right now. Figuring out what the the tactile things are that will make a show compelling and different. You know, this is the stuff that blows me away because it's not anywhere in in my world or in my bailiwick. But that's what these people do. And they do it all day long. And they challenge each other and they, they think through every last bit of the detail. And we get to see it when we go to these gate review meetings. But how they must challenge each other on a day-by-day basis to get to where they get is, it's, it's pretty mind-blowing. It's pretty cool. So when something does roll out to the world in a public way, the the man hours that have gone into it and the passion that's gone into it is just immeasurable. And hopefully the public reacts with that, that same passion. I love the idea of the gate review meetings. It's got to be great forum for like pushing back and just developing an idea and teasing out the, the different strands, but it must also be fun to watch the idea get stronger, not only come to life, but sort of watch all the holes you can shoot and it get filled. You know, Lawrence, and more importantly, like there isn't, there are many rooms where I don't feel horribly comfortable in. That is one of them. Like I, I'm in that room thinking to myself, what am I doing in a producer meeting? Right. I don't, and, and by the way, that there's another thing like that, that moniker, which I wear now because I am a producer of, of these shows that we're putting out there feels weird. to me. I, I feel like a producer is like a, an impresario, right? People that are, that are creating things out of thin air. And I'm, I mean, this is just a window into my, my psychotic dimension. Your self-worth. <laughs> 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 yeah, that I get to pass judgment on other people's art is yeah. almost silly in some ways when I'm sitting in these meetings. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. I, the interesting thing about that title, though, or that role is that what I have found is that it takes all kinds. And sometimes you find somebody that can sit really comfortably at that intersection of creativity and business. But usually it's why you see so many names above the line. It's because it takes all those different attributes. Sometimes a producer is a financial guru who knows how to go raise money with a few phone calls or emails. And sometimes it's somebody that knows how to, you know, get the thing fabricated or, and and sometimes it's the person that has the creative vision. So um, don't fret your imposter syndrome. (laughs) Oh, I I appreciate that. Thank you. I'll remember that forever. 
Well, just so you know, I do take insurance. So if, if I'm, and I, I might be out of network though. So this mental health <laughs> session, I might have to bill you directly. Um, but. That's all good. <laughs> all right. And it will be well disturbed. <laughs> Thank you so much, Vito Yaya and the team at Impact Museums. Thank you, Aunt Taylor and the team at Light. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Get and share all of our past episodes, write a review, even send us a message through our website, spotlightonpodcast.com. If you like what we're up to here, please leave us a review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Join us again next week. In the meantime, be safe and stay in touch.